Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So let's get started with this week's questions. So as always, I'll read the questions off so you guys can kind of follow along um, as well. So let's get started. So the first one um, is not so much an exam question, but kind of a question about studying in, in general. So Desiree says, hi, everyone. I'm a new intern, and I'm looking to start studying for the exam when I have free time. Does anyone have any tips? I've heard good things about the Gene Inman study guide, but don't know where to purchase and access it. So this is a great question, and one I get a lot. People being like, you know, where where do I start? So in that post, I did comment at the bottom with my free um, exam prep class, which is really great. It kind of goes over structure of the exam and then my top tips and mistakes to avoid. But one more thing, though, kind of in general, I think the best first thing to do is kind of do an assessment on yourself. And I talked about that in this week's newsletter and be like, you know, after I'm coming out of my internship or even for those of you who are coming out of an exam, where are you? You know, what was your internship really strong in? What areas do you still struggle in? You know, what is your study schedule going to be like? Are you working full time? Do you have kids? Do you go at a slower pace to learn things? You know, you really want to kind of do an analysis of kind of where you are in your studying. And in terms of study materials, if you take my class, I talk about the same thing. I think the Gene Inman is a great base. You definitely do not need the newest version. So definitely kind of look around, talk to, to people from your internship, post on the Facebook page. And the Inman's a really great guide. But, you know, it's a guide. It's a reference. It's not a Bible. So, you know, it is very kind of text heavy. Where's mine from the archives for the right? Like it's very text heavy, as you can see here. So, you know, a lot of the time that doesn't work for a lot of students. Um, so you do need to supplement it a little bit. You know, it can be Google, it can be classes, it could be study, you know, studying from your notes from school, but don't be afraid to supplement it. My other favorite one is definitely Pocket Prep. It's Medical Pocket Prep, I think now. It's an app. It's 15 bucks on um, the app store and it has over 800 questions. So that one's really great. So I'd say kind of those are a great um, base for you, but definitely check out the free class. I'll put it in the comments of the live too, um, but you can also navigate it to it too by going to my website, danajfnutrition.com, clicking the recorded courses, and then go to the library and you can find it there. So, and people commented in the comments too on that post saying to, you know, their tips, you know, um, Inman, you know, they're saying Inman's really helpful. Julia said, um, you know, kind of look at your free time. And if you want to do a study, I, again, everyone kind of is a little bit different. So definitely, you know, watch that course and happy to answer any questions anyone has. So the next question is, it's a little chart and we can kind of see, you know, there's different tasks kind of flowing. Um, it kind of looks like a flow chart a little bit. And I said, what is this an example of and how is it useful for a business project? So this chart is a PERT chart. 
So a PERT chart is one of the charts that we're going to be using in project management. A PERT chart is telling us, you know, when, you know, what order are tasks going to be in and how long are they going to take? What order should I do in them? And we're typically using this for projects that we know the duration of each task, but we don't necessarily know when I'm going to start it. You know, I don't know if I'm starting it on the 4th of April, but once I do start, it's going to, I'm going to do task one for four days and flow into the next few days. So this is often confused with a Gantt process chart. So a Gantt process chart is pretty much the same thing, but we're putting dates. So I'm saying, okay, Monday, April 4th, I'm starting to study domain three for four days. Then I'm switching, you know, on the Wednesday, the 6th, I'm going to go switch over to the new one. So the Gantt has dates. It still tells us the duration and the order, um, but it has dates. The per chart does not have dates on it. And again, you guys know I always recommend you kind of Google different things because I think it's really helpful to kind of see um, what different things look like. Because again, I mean, it's not very um, picture heavy. Um, so... Next up is a question from me. I said, list the reasons for a high and low albumin um, and why is this not an accurate measure of malnutrition as well as what are the lab values? So definitely albumin is a lab value to know. So it has a pretty tight range. It's 3.5 to 5 milligrams per um, deciliter. And so some really common reasons for a high is typically dehydration, right? If we think dehydration high levels because my blood volume is shrunken and that's going to cause many, many things to be high. So that's one of the reasons we see it. So dehydration, often my patients who have acute kidney injury, we might see that um, as well. It could technically be from like a super high protein intake. We're really not going to see that we're more likely going to see low. And there's a few reasons that it could be low. The first thing is what we kind of typically think of is the inflammatory process, right? We know that albumin is an acute phase protein, meaning that when the body's inflamed, our liver is going to have hepatic reprioritization and say, you know what, I don't need to make this albumin right now. I'm going to go make something else. And so the production of albumin is going to de be decreased regardless of my protein status. So this is where we see a lot of the memes, um, you know, that are like, you know, telling the doctors all the time that albumin is not a good marker of nutritional status because if there's any inflammation, it could be falsely low. So, you know, one reason is for inflammation. Another reason is if there's anything wrong with the liver, right? My albumin's a protein made in the liver. So, if there's something wrong kind of with my factory of my liver, it doesn't matter how much protein I'm eating, it could be have low albumin just because I can't make the albumin too. And another reason too is just malnutrition. If I'm not eating enough protein, I'm not going to have enough protein to make my albumin too. And the last one that we often forget about is volume overload, right? So if I'm having hypo low levels of albumin, it could be because I'm having, you know, very large volumes of fluid on me, ascites, edema, anasarca. And so we know when the blood volume is expanded, that typically causes our levels to be low. 
So again, lots of different reasons when we're thinking about the half-life. Remember, it can be 20 days, it can be three weeks, they're the same. So we're not going to expect albumin if it's low from malnutrition, which it sometimes is. We're not going to expect to see a change in our patient, you know, for at least three weeks. So I often have patients, especially on surgical service, where the surgeons are like, Dana, you started them on TPN. Why? Is their albumin not improving? And I'm like, you know, we're really not going to see too many changes right away. Like, what about you look at them? Like, don't they look malnourished? Um, so really great albumin question. Again, you want to think of other reasons besides just volume, too. Okay, next one we got math. So grab your calculators, grab your paper. I always think it's fun to do it live. So this one, I said, a patient has lost 30 pounds. She used to weigh 160 pounds and is now 130 pounds. Calculate the percent weight change. And is this a significant weight loss over a six-month time frame as well as a two-month time frame and why? So with any of our math questions, it's good to do a few passes. So in this first pass, I'm literally reading it out loud, you know, for myself obviously for you guys, but it helps to read out loud, especially when you're practicing at home. Obviously in the testing center, you can't like be like, pss, 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 you know, but when you're practicing, it is helpful so you practice slowing down. So I read it out loud. Then I'm like, okay, let me pull out the relevant information. Okay, so the weight lost is 30 pounds. I'm writing that down, okay. Her usual body weight is 160 pounds. Her current body weight, oftentimes in the hospital, we're saying like estimated dry weight, is 130. So already I can pause there. I'm like, okay, well, I don't need to know she lost 30 pounds because that's what, you know, the estimated dry weight is saying now too. So you can use either one. It's giving you double information here. Okay, so I'm asking myself, is a significant weight change over six month time period. So there's two different ways you can do this. Um, so how I typically do it in the hospital is I'll find my percent usual body weight. And remember with percent usual body weight or percent ideal body weight, I'm always the numerator is what my patient is now compared to the comparative standard. So if I was writing this out, I would do my what my patient is now, the dry weight 130 over 160 to get my percent usual body weight. So that's 130 divided by 160. And that would be 81% usual body weight. So that would be 19% weight loss. You could also do it another way, right? We could be saying she lost 30 pounds, you know, so 30 pounds over um, 160. And that, if we do it that way, then we get 18.7 pounds. Again, we can kind of round up. So either way you want to do it there is fine as long as you got the 19. Um, and again, with the math, there's lots of different ways to be doing this. And people in the comments kind of did different ways. So you can do whatever one you want. So, okay, perfect. So I'm saying 19% weight loss. Okay, so that's my first point. So I'm saying, is this a significant weight loss in a six-month time frame? So this is when we need to think about our Aspen guidelines, right? What is significant weight loss? So if we kind of think about starting at a year, greater than 20% in a year, 
greater than 6% in six months, greater than 7.5% in three months, and then in a month greater than 5%. So I'm like, okay, perfect. So where am I? 19% in six months, right? It's significant at every single time point because, right, my lower range is just greater than 10%. So this is going to be significant throughout. And while this seems pretty crazy, um, I work in oncology patients at the hospital and this happens all the time. I recently had someone who had a 24% weight loss in six weeks. You can drop weight super duper fast when you're ill. So this is not unrealistic. So that's a great one. Okay, next up, we're not done with the math, you know, keep your calculator warm. So I said, what is the ideal body weight of a man who is 6'3 and a woman who is 5'9? So first off, let's start with the man, right? This is going to be our Hamley equation. So I'm thinking it's 106 pounds for the first five feet. And then every pound after that is going to be, well, sorry, every inch after that is going to be six pounds extra. So what I'm asking myself is I'm like, okay, this man is 6'3", right? So if I think about how many inches, right, five feet is, five feet is 60 inches is five feet, right? And how tall is this man? So he is 60 inches, right? Plus another foot, so plus 12, plus three. So he is 75 inches tall. So if I give him 106 for the first 60 inches, and then I'm saying, okay, then he's 15 inches over that. So then I'll do 15 times six. So that's another 90 pounds. So his ideal body weight would be the 106 for the first five feet plus 90 pounds for the extra 15 inches. And that's gonna get us 196 for his ideal body weight. And looks like people in the comments got that one. Okay, so now for a woman. So a woman is different, right? We're doing 100 pounds for the first five feet plus five pounds for every inch over five feet. So this is a little bit easier, right? Because we're doing, okay, nine times five is 45. So the woman would be 145 for the ideal body weight. And so you don't get confused with this one. What I really recommend is that you know your own ideal body weight, right? So I am 5'4", so I'm like, okay, perfect. I get 100 pounds for my first five feet, lucky me. Then I get five pounds for every inch over five feet. So that would be five times four, which would be 120. So my ideal body weight is 120 pounds. And so that helps to kind of orient me if I'm like, wait, what is the process? Okay, I know myself. Okay, and then I can extrapolate it. And especially with those over six feet, I think it's most helpful to kind of be like, okay, 60 inches, and how many inches are they over 60? So those ones are definitely good to practice. Okay, so next question I said, for a patient with extensive peritoneal disease, remember peritoneal is this area kind of around your abdomen, right? We often think peritoneal dialysis. So I'm saying this patient has extensive peritoneal disease. What type of nutrition support would you not 
be able to use and why. Um, so let's take a look at the comments. So Julia says, I would say enteral nutrition would be contraindication because peritoneal cancer can spread to the stomach and colon and TPN could be better. So this is definitely partially true. So TPN is probably what this patient needs, but something that you can think in mind, right? The peritoneum is around the abdomen. So this patient definitely can't get a peg, right? Because there's going to be tumors kind of blocking that transit. But a lot of the time, these patients who have peritoneal disease, if it's not impacting, like, you know, if it's just in the peritoneum and not actually in their GI tract, they can get a short-term access. But eventually, these patients will often have to go to TPN because there's no long-term enteral access to, let's see what else other people said in the comments. Katerina says, you'd want to avoid, you know, an NG tube or a peg. Like we said, you could potentially do an NG tube, definitely not a peg. There's too much disease. There's too much disease here. And again, you know, Krista says, you know, could it be discomforting to the GI? Definitely. Um, but a lot of the time our patients, even though their GI tract works, the contraindication for tube feeds is the fact that they're going to need them long-term and they can't get that long-term access. So most patients with peritoneal disease are going to need TPN. So this is a lot of my patients because I work with solid organ tumor patients. So they have, you know, stomach, they have liver, they have pancreatic cancer. So I often need to put them on TPN. So the next one is more of a chart um, on some of the diabetes drugs. And so one thing I want to mention about the diabetes drugs and actually drugs in general is you want to be able to think about what disease is this for? And then, you know, some common names, you definitely don't need to memorize them all, but you should have some recognition because that's going to help you to be like, nope, I don't need this one. I don't need this one. Um, and then you also want to be thinking of the mechanism, especially with the diabetes drugs. You want to think, what does this do? You know, are there any risks with it? Too. And so when we're thinking about the diabetes drugs, one of kind of like the main nutrition concerns, not necessarily a food drug interaction, but definitely one of the major concerns is with the insulin secretories. Because if we think about their mechanism, the only mechanism is that it increases insulin secretion. So this one has a high risk for hypoglycemia. So when we're thinking about kind of nutrition for these patients, we would want to make sure that they're checking their blood sugars so that they're not going to go low. The other types of diabetes medications don't have this like big concern for the hypoglycemia side effect because even those that are going to increase insulin sensitivity or in increase insulin secretion, it's not the only mechanism. Versus our insulin secretors, the only mechanism of them is going to be to encourage insulin secretion. So definitely take a look at that chart. You can also do, if you're listening to this later on, you can also just search um, DM medications and it will come up. But definitely if, if the medications are a trouble area for you, check out the medications recorded class, but also there's one specifically on diabetes as well. 
Um, oh, and this kind of goes with Haley's question, and Haley passed her exam this week, so extra special shout out to Haley. Um, but she had she had asked for advice on the different types of medications for diabetes, um, and exactly what I said before. You want to be thinking about, you know, what is the class, what are some common names, but what's the mechanism, and that's really going to help you to kind of tease it out um, a little bit too. Okay. Next up, I said, if your patient is reporting oily stools, what lab should you check and why? So this is steatorrhea, right? The oily stools. Um, I often will ask this of my patients who have pancreatic cancer who are dropping weight really, really quick because the concern with steatorrhea is a few different things. Number one, my fat-soluble vitamins. I'm concerned about essential fatty acid deficiency, but also, right, fat is so caloric. So if I'm excreting a lot of fat, I'm not getting those calories. So often I get consulted on my pancreatic cancer patients and their weight, you know, like I was saying before, the patient who had the 24% weight loss in six weeks, that was a pancreatic cancer patient because you're just, you know, you're malabsorbing, you know, plus you're having increased metabolism. So that fat malabsorption is something I'm always concerned about. And I'll just ask them, I'll be like, do you have any oil in your stools? And nine times out of 10, they're like, oh, how did you know? I'm like, and if you imagine what this looks like, I always describe it as it kind of looks like salad dressing, like a balsamic salad dressing, right? You have the stool on the bottom and then the fat is kind of at the top. Um, but this can be definitely severe. So in our back to our question of what labs should you check and why, you know, a lot of people said our fat-soluble vitamins definitely, right? Because I'm worried that we're not absorbing them. And you can actually give them back. If they do come back low, you can give them um, what's called like an aquadex, which is like aqua and then like A-D-A-K, which is the water-soluble form of the fat-soluble vitamins, right? Because if I just give them fat-soluble, they're not going to get it. Um, so definitely want to check that. But then also we can check lipase. So if our lipase is high, right, that's because it's backing out of the pancreas into the blood, telling me I'm having some sort of obstruction. Um, this is also a diagnostic sign for pancreatitis. And then we can definitely check a fecal elastase as well, which is checking the stool for that fat malabsorption. That tends to take a few days to resolve. And I'm like, if my patient's like, ooh, yeah, there's oil in there. I'm like, perfect. Um, but one of the reasons I might actually order a fecal assays is because if I my patients have Medicare and their insurance is kind of being annoying about paying for their TPN, I need to actually have a lab value where I'm like, they're having fat malabsorption. I need to give IV fat. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.